Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Thanks so much for being with us on the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, crazy, and crazy martinis. So two crazies today. Jim, let's jump right into it. Uh, Last week, of course, we had the final, as of right now, public impeachment hearings. Uh, The Democrats seemed quite certain after Gordon Sondland and Fiona Hill that they had made their case. They were going to take it to the jury. We're writing the, the impeachment report over the Thanksgiving break, which still seems to be happening. But the question now is whether anything's really changed as a result of the hearings. Uh, According to uh, polling that you talked about in the morning, Joel, today, uh, independents certainly are drifting away from it. And overall, the numbers look almost exactly like they did before the hearing started. So well done, everybody who took all the time to do that. And now we've got uh, Democrats even who believe that, you know, we're actually less than a year away from an election. This is the point Jim's been making for a while. And now some Democrats are actually coming around to the same point. Uh, National Review, uh, Myron McArdle, your colleague, points out that uh, Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence, it's not a household name, but she's uh, a Democrat who represents the east side of Detroit. This is not red territory. (laughs) This is very deep Democratic territory. I believe the other report that I saw said she won her district by 64 points in 2018. So not exactly up all night waiting for the results on that one. She voted for the impeachment inquiry. Uh, She told CNN in June, our democracy is bigger than Donald Trump and we need to act. Uh, Now she sees things differently. She was talking with someone named Charlie LaDuff on the No BS NewsHour. She says, you can censure. You don't have to remove the president. Sitting here, knowing how divided this country is, I don't see the value of kicking him out of office. But I do see the value of putting down a marker saying his behavior is not acceptable. This created a little bit of surprise on the show, considering uh, what Lawrence has said in the past, Jim. And I don't know if she's an outlier uh, or not, but it seems that uh, even though the Democrats were real proud of themselves towards the end of last week, where where things stood, things are kind of either holding steady and, and not uh, gaining the momentum that they thought they were going to get and probably need to get this across the finish line. Where do we stand here? You know, Greg, this really did jump out because this is a deep blue district. There, there's no way she's feeling political pressure from her constituents or, or you know, pressure for a no vote or anything like that. Um, there's no indication that she's, you know, secretly a MAGAite or uh, has a beef with Pelosi or, you know, Schiff or, or anybody like that. And the only plausible answer here, Greg, is this is what she really thinks. We're just not used to dealing with that in, in Washington. But the other thing that kind of jumps out is, and I you know, did discuss this in the morning newsletter, was that you look at the numbers, look, they're not great for the White House. You generally are finding a slight uh, advantage for the yes, you should be removed numbers. It's usually somewhere in the mid uh, to upper 40s somewhere. The he should not be removed is usually below it, but only by about you know, anywhere from one to four points. Um, this is your classic example of a closely divided country. And obviously, you're not going to get 67 votes with that. My suspicion is, is that maybe some Democrats are looking at this and saying, well, we're not we know this is not going to end that way. But not only that, we've just had what looked like two weeks of really good uh, televised hearings full of bad testimony for the president. There's really not that much dispute about what he did. The White House is still clinging to this kind of ridiculous, oh, the call was perfect justification. Uh, Sondland appeared to flip. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of stuff there, and it didn't really move the numbers. And 
as various polls in the last couple of weeks have revealed, including the Marquette poll up in Wisconsin, not only is it not playing particularly well in the swing states, it's not playing particularly well amongst independents in the swing states. So if you can't move the numbers when you're getting pretty much everything breaking your way, then things are probably not necessarily going to get any better from here on out. So there may be a certain school of thought amongst Democrats who are saying, you know what, we tried, it didn't work. Uh, the real contest about whether the Trump presidency continues is going to happen in November 2020. Let's just get our get rip off the Band-Aid, get this done and over with, and go for it. Now, I got to tell you, I don't see any scenario the Democrats don't get 218 votes. I, if they don't think they're going to get 218 votes, they're just not going to vote on it. And my guess is that if they really need to, they can arm twist, et cetera, et cetera. I expect it'll be a very party line vote. I don't think you'll get that many more than the two votes uh, who voted, the two Democrats who voted against uh, starting the inquiry. But now maybe there's this Detroit area congresswoman, maybe Tulsi Gabbard. All of a sudden, maybe you could have, you know, five to ten. And all of a sudden, that would be seen as a fairly significant defeat for, for House of Democrats. So I think the, the, the outlook for impeachment is just a little bit cloudier than it was just a couple of days ago. Yeah, fascinating to watch because this decision by Congresswoman Lawrence probably makes her more likely to get a primary challenger in that district than uh, if she had just said nothing at all and, and gone along with this. And uh, you're right. Uh, we're still going to get uh, a House impeachment more likely than not. We do now shift to the Judiciary Committee. And Jim, I'm sure they've had some hearings since then. But last, uh, the public really saw Jerry Nadler's panel was, I believe, the Corey Lewandowski testimony. And we all know what a dignified experience that was in all respects. <laughs> yeah, if there's anybody who can keep order and, and keep things from turning into a circus, it's Jerry Nadler. Yeah. That's right. All right. Well, speaking of 2020 and more and more folks thinking that maybe the voters should have a chance to just pass judgment on all this, let's talk about the Democratic field. And uh, Ryan Lizza has a... New piece out in uh, Politico uh, where he's talking about the role that Barack Obama is playing behind the scenes. He's kind of this uh, informal advisor as a lot of different candidates consider running or decided to run. Some people jumping in late, uh, including uh, Deval Patrick. Uh, Obama allegedly told him that it was too late for him to secure money and talent if he jumped in. Jumped in anyway, so you can see how well he followed the advice. Uh, here's the the part that's probably going to raise the most eyebrows, though. Occasionally, he, meaning Obama, can be cutting. With one candidate, he pointed out that during his own 2008 campaign, he had an intimate bond with the electorate, especially in Iowa, that he no longer has. Then he added, and you know who really doesn't have it? Joe Biden. So... Jim, we heard for months and months, and we're still hearing from Joe Biden that, uh, you know, Obama was all set to endorse, but, you know, Joe just wanted to win this on his own. So is Obama just uh, playing this more shrewdly than we expected? Uh, is he not confident that Biden can actually get the nomination? Doesn't want to look like he got behind the wrong horse if, if Biden doesn't get the nomination? What's going on here? You know, Greg, if I had a lot more free time, I think I'd want to research and write a book about the relationship between Barack Obama and Joe Biden, because it, there's a lot of weird little wrinkles to it that indicates that, you know, like, you know, Reagan and Bush had a, um, you know, not always the smoothest. They, they worked close. They worked closely together, but they were not particularly personally close. Um, the tensions between Bill Clinton and Al Gore towards the end were really kind of fascinating. Uh, we know that Dick Cheney had a real irritation with uh, President George W. Bush when he did not pardon Scooter Libby. But then we brings us to uh, Obama and Biden. And you kind of get the feeling that 
I don't say unrequited love would be an over exaggeration, but maybe maybe Biden likes Obama a bit more than Obama likes Biden. And first of there were the reports that Obama kind of discouraged Biden from running in 2016. And some people may have thought, oh, he believed it was Hillary's turn or that Hillary deserved it or, or you know, that Joe Biden shouldn't run so soon after his son passed away. Um, but these comments and then the fact that Deval Patrick, who's apparently a good buddy of Barack Obama's, chose to run at this late date kind of indicates that maybe Barack Obama doesn't have a particularly great optimism about Joe Biden running for president. And the other interesting wrinkle is, you know, we've already seen a Democratic primary in which Obama's record, if not Obama himself, has come under a considerable amount of criticism. And I think for a bunch of different, you know, there are a bunch of reasons rank and file Democrats might feel more critical towards Obama than they used to. One of which being that, well, he's out of office and so now it's safe to criticize him, right? Now all of a sudden, you know, it's not the, the president of the United States will, will, you know, try to get back at you if he sees you as uh, uh, speaking out of turn or, or, you know, he feels like your criticism is coming across as too harsh. Look, the Obama presidency ended with the Trump presidency. And that's, you know, to a lot of Democrats, this is the worst thing that's happened in their lifetimes. If you were old enough to live through 9-11, I think that's an asinine comparison. But to a lot of Democrats, this is really a disaster. And so if, if the Obama presidency begat the Trump presidency, it can't be that good. And I think if Joe Biden runs against Trump, could, could Biden beat Trump? Sure. Is Biden a guarantee to beat Trump? No, I don't think so. I think look at the swing state polls, they look pretty close. And if Biden were to lose to Trump and Trump were to be a two-term president, then I think the, Joe, the Barack Obama uh, legacy would really take another hit, perhaps below the waterline. You know, it's one thing to for Hillary Clinton to run a bad campaign. But we don't. Look, 2000, mid of summer 2008, Joe Biden was just another senator from Delaware. Right? There, there was nobody who was saying, oh, this is a guy he'd run in 2008 and flopped. He'd run in 1988 and flopped. Uh, people were like, OK. People kind of were ready to say, all right, that's, uh, that's the end of Biden. Now he's, you know, potentially he may be the guy carrying the torch. If he falls short against Donald Trump, man, the Democratic Party is going to be looking for scapegoats. And my guess is Barack Obama would be one of those scapegoats. So I think it's very revealing that Obama has not run or has not come out and formally endorsed and has made a big deal about how neutral he's going to be. Um, we haven't seen Obama come out, you know, even say anything all that nice about Biden lately. Um, it's a very interesting and complicated relationship between these two guys. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some point you started seeing some uh, Biden himself will never express any uh, resentment towards Barack, as Woody Harrelson <laughs> does in his impression of, uh, of Biden. But I, I think maybe the Biden campaign might be getting a little irritated with the, uh, uh, the Obama camp right now. Yeah, I think Joe needs Barack a lot more than Barack needs Joe at this point, uh, even in addition to the liking stuff. Uh, I assume if Biden's the nominee, then Obama will come full-throated in his support for him at the convention and so forth. I don't know how much he'll campaign for him, but to, uh, to get... What choice does he have? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but to get behind him now and then have him rejected by his own party would be a, a severe, severe blow, not just to the legacy, but to the ego. And uh, I don't think he wants to deal with that either. So he's uh, hedging his bets, as they like to say. All right, on to our second crazy martini now. And Jim... Big day in college football coming up the, this weekend and throughout the Thanksgiving weekend. You got all the rivalry games, Michigan, Ohio State, Alabama, Auburn, Florida, Florida State, all that good stuff. There were a few of these rivalry games this past weekend. You had USC, UCLA, and then uh, up in the Ivy League, you had Harvard, Yale. What's a, a more iconic uh, old school rivalry than that other than Army, Navy or something like that? 
Yale's got a good team, one loss. Harvard came in at four and five, but was up by 19 points at one point in this game. And Yale came all the way back, wins it in double overtime. Exciting, exciting game. Yale's your Ivy League champion. That should really be the headline, but no. No, 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 no. The game was delayed by over an hour because at halftime, a bunch of students stormed the field. CBS News with the story. Protesters disrupted the annual Harvard-Yale football game in Connecticut today. Some 150 students from both schools stormed the field at halftime, delaying the game for nearly an hour. They're demanding the universities drop their investments in fossil fuel companies that students say contribute to climate change. Here's the... uh ESPN story. Officials said 42 people were charged with disorderly conduct after a protest interrupted a Saturday football game between arch rivals Harvard and Yale. Students from both schools occupied the midfield of the Yale Bowl during Saturday's halftime protest. Some held banners urging their colleges to act on climate change. Other signs referred to Puerto Rican debt relief and China's treatment of Uyghurs. Most protesters walked off after about an hour. Those who remained were charged with misdemeanor disorderly conduct. And so... Activism has now interrupted the game. And, of course, Jim, for the for the liberal media, this is just wonderful. But uh, what do you make of these students at these elite institutions doing something like this? You know, Greg, there are times we can feel like the world is against us, both with the, you know, being Jets fans, for being Bears fans. We spent a few weeks complaining about the NBA and saying, why isn't anybody standing up for the Uyghurs and the China's treatment of them and this is what happens. We end up doing. We have, finally, somebody in the sports world does show stand up for the Uyghurs. It just happens to be fans of uh, of Ivy League football. Uh, yeah, Ivy League. The Ivy League has football, America. Um, and if you if you doubt that, there is this quarterback named Ryan Fitzpatrick who you know did end up in the NFL. Um, but seeing how Harvard lost the uh, lost the game and you know blew that lead there, uh, Greg. So it's safe to say that the first effect of climate change is that Harvard can't take the heat. Uh, my understanding, the Harvard fans were so heartbroken, they had to resort to chanting at the Yale fans, safety school, safety school. As everyone had, I feel like everybody who saw these reports and the, the images coming in on Twitter last Saturday afternoon kind of had the exact same thing. Yeah, you guys try that at an LSU game. <laughs> try, try that at University of Texas. Try that at Notre Dame. Any school where they take college football, anywhere in Florida, basically, right? Anywhere in the entire south, you know, southeast. Yeah, you guys try that and see how that works out for you. If you thought a bunch of band people got hit, got hit hard on that play at Cal all those years ago during the kickoff return, just wait till a linebacker you know, decides to knock you on your tush for interrupting the game. Um, look, I'm not a fan of protests that disrupt things that other people are there to enjoy. I don't like when you shut down traffic. I don't like when you try to shut down bridges. And boy, if there's any, you know, I'd like to see the strategy session. Like, how can we get Americans to take climate change seriously? Let's interrupt football games. <laughs> Everybody loves that. Look, climate change activists, we hate commercials for interrupting our football games. We hate instant replay for interrupting our football games. What do you think we're going to do when you decide to sit in the middle of the field? Tell us, you know, we got to give up for Big Macs. Finally, kind of an exit question there, Greg. How did these people get to the game? I'm sure they all walked or took their bikes, all of them. Or sailed, you know. <laughs> that That's probably more likely there. Gerbil chariots or something. <laughs> Yes, well, it went to double overtime. It was delayed. My uh, my father-in-law was very interested in the game on ESPN that came after that game, and so his kickoff was delayed. He was not very happy about that. Uh, Jim, also finding out here that among the 42 people... Wait, ra- ESPN had this live? 
Oh yeah, I, they probably they might have cut away while the game wasn't going on, but um, you know, it's ESPN. I'm, I'm sure they thought it was wonderful. I, I understand ESPN covers like every college football game in the entire country every Sunday. But, every, <laughs> but the, the idea that this would be the lead game at a, at a Saturday afternoon slot strikes me as kind of interesting. Oh, it could have been the Deuce. I don't know for sure if it was uh, okay. the ESPN flag or, or the Ocho. <laughs> yes, exactly. But among the 42 people arrested, actor Sam Waterston, who of course was Jack McCoy on uh, Law and Order as the <laughs> as the prosecutor. <laughs> So I'm trying to imagine prosecutor Jack McCoy in court trying to prosecute Sam Waterston for disrupting the football game. Chambers, your honor. (laughs) I mean, if you're a prosecutor and you go up against Sam Waterston, (laughs) is there a little bit of intimidation there? Or is it a sense of this guy's just going to end up yelling, how dare you, the entire time? Uh, No more questions, your honor. (laughs) We just need to find an old clip of uh, Fred Thompson. He was the Diego and... Um, I don't know about that one, Jack. Jack, I hope you know what you're doing. (laughs) I miss Fred Thompson. All right, Jim, that'll do it for today. See you tomorrow when we start our Thanksgiving specials. Looking forward to it, Greg. See you tomorrow. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thank you so much for being with us today. And tomorrow, the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, we'll be talking about the three things each of us is politically thankful for. We'll be off on Thursday for Thanksgiving itself. And then on Friday, we'll be here with our Black Friday special and the gifts we want to get various political figures. So don't miss those. Join us again Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.